Hello and welcome to The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson. I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach. And today I'm delighted to welcome Daniel Pink, author of the New York Times bestsellers Drive, To Sell is Human and When. His books have sold millions of copies, have been translated into 42 languages and won multiple awards. His new book, The Power of Regret, draws on research in psychology, neuroscience, economics and biology to explore the role of regret in our lives. In this podcast, he talks about regrets in his own life and career and offers practical tips on how we can turn the things we regret into a force for good. Uh, Well, hello, Daniel, and welcome to The Art of Work. I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. And I was so pleased when I heard about your new book because I've always been a very big fan of negative thinking. Many years ago, <laughs> I, many years ago, I wrote a column, um, and the headline was "Negative Thinking: Why Negative Thinking Makes the World Better." And uh, a reader wrote to me and said it had literally changed her life. And um, so I'm I'm absolutely delighted that you've you know devoted this whole book to uh, the benefits of digging deep into this stuff. I mean, when, whenever anyone tells me they're an optimist, my heart sinks. So what, what was the spark that triggered this? Well, I mean, here's the, th- I mean, you make a, you make a good point. I mean, optimism is a good thing. It just can't be the only thing. Your positive thinking is a good thing. It just can't be the only thing. We have to have a portfolio of, of, of both positive and negative emotions. And, and in some ways, you know, America has forced us into this endless positivity, mm-hmm. uh, which has positivity has many, many virtues. I just want to be clear about that, but it can't be the only emotion that we have because then we don't learn anything. We don't advance. We don't grow. But for me, the spark, if there was one, was simply realizing that I had plenty of regrets of my own. And, you know, as I accumulated more life experience and I had more time to look backward, I said, well, wait a second, if only I had done that, if only I had done that. One of the catalysts was my elder daughter graduating from university and being at that kind of inflection point in my life and looking backward. And what I realized is when I came back and talked to people about these regrets, they leaned in. They didn't recoil uh, because it, it seemed like a topic people really wanted to discuss. And for you, when you set out on a book, because obviously there's a huge amount, you commissioned a lot of your, you did a lot of your own research and you uncovered a lot of existing research. Does there always need to be a, an emotional spark for you, a kind of emotional resonance, mm. you know, in cliche terms, the, the journey? Do you need that to power you through or is intellectual curiosity enough? That's an interesting question, because I, I, I don't know if there's that much of a distinction between those two. Like for me, it is curiosity more than anything else. But for me, curiosity is partly intellectual, but partly emotional because you're excited mm. about something. Mm. Uh, so that's really the thing. I mean, you make a good point in that writing a book is very difficult. It takes a long time if you want to do it well and if you want to do it thoroughly. And it is a you know, it's a daily grind. And so if you're not deeply interested in it, I guess both cognitively and emotionally, there's no way you're going to sustain yourself. Mm. One of the sad threads running through the book is all these people who've had tattoos saying no regrets, which of course they then regret (laughs) and have to have removed. How do you think or why do you think this idea of no regrets has taken such a profound hold over Western culture, apart from Edith Piaf and her song, or maybe that is a part (laughs) of it? Yes, I, I think it has to do with this, uh, a few things. First is that we haven't really been taught about what to do with negative emotions. And as a consequence, we go one of two ways. We bat them away and pretend that they don't exist, thinking that it's a sign of some kind of, that they're dangerous intruders and so they need to be repelled. And then when we can't do that, they end up, taking us over and we haven't been thought systematically how to deal with them. And we've been sold this false promise that, that being like no regrets, no regrets is courageous. When in fact, actually what's courageous is looking at your regrets in the eye and doing something about them. Mm. Yeah. 
I mean, you come from a country where positive thinking is almost a religion. I was fascinated. <laughs> I was fascinated and horror struck to read that Norman Vincent Peale had advised Donald Trump. I had no idea. And, uh, and, so- and, 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 and Richard Nixon. And Nixon. I mean, you couldn't pick yeah. two bigger baddies, really, could you? But um, if anyone wants to show the perniciousness of, of positive thinking, that's that's probably it. The reason that people don't deal with regrets effectively is that they haven't been shown how to do that. So there are two things. One, they haven't been instructed about what to do with negative emotions. Mm. And so they end up um, you know, in one or two opposite directions, neither of which is particularly healthy. They ignore them, which leads to despair, or they wallow in them, which leads to, uh, I mean, they, they, you know, ignoring them leads to just delusion, as you're suggesting. Mm-hmm. And then the other, uh, wallowing in them leads to despair. I think that's part of it. The other thing is, is that, you know, one of the things I noticed in writing this book and collecting regrets from around the world is that we somehow think that our experience is wildly different from everybody else's. Yeah. And so when we feel the spear of regret, when we think about our regrets, we say, oh my gosh, no one else has any regrets. No one else is talking about this stuff. I'm somehow different. I'm somehow flawed. And that's one of the things that I wanted to overcome that kind of, you know, what a social scientist might call pluralistic ignorance. That is, we are have a certain set of beliefs, but we somehow believe that we're the only people with those beliefs when in fact those beliefs are widely shared. Yeah. You talk about the psychological self-trickery involved in presenting a facade of of no regrets and how that prevents people from doing the difficult work that produces genuine contentment. Exactly, and, yeah. And, and, and one of the biggest regrets people have, in fact, is about not doing the difficult work it takes to produce a fulfilling career, good relationships, and so on. Did it did it feel like a mission for you to take this on? How far do your books feel like a mission or is it more intellectual curiosity? Well, curiosity, let's take the word intellectual out of it because you've already said yeah. it's a mix of emotional intellectual. You know, it's both. It's, it's another very interesting question because I don't see stark borders between that concept either. So that is, if I'm curious about something, then that curiosity is going to help. That curiosity is going to propel me to find out more about it. But that same curiosity is going to propel, propel me to share it with other people. Um, and so, you know, so for this book, I was curious about just figuring out regret and what it meant. But then once I once I discovered some of the big ideas there, I, I wanted to actually reclaim this word as a force for forward progress and then and bring it out there. So. To me, all these things work to all those all these mm-hmm. kinds of things work together. The intellect, the emotion, the curiosity, the mission, they are their partners rather than mm-hmm. distinct entities. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's a fascinating book. I, I underlined huge chunks of it and oh, uh, and you know I kept writing wow as a not I'm a literary critic, but it's not not the most sophisticated <laughs> comment. But I kept writing that next to paragraphs. What were the biggest surprises for you in the research? That you did. I think the biggest. Well, so I did. I did two. I, I there's sort of three legs of this stool here. First, I did. I looked at some of the academic, uh, as much as I could possibly get, the academic research on regret, uh, showing you know just how ubiquitous it is and some of the functions that it serves. And and I guess what surprised me there was that it was so ubiquitous. It's one of our most common. It's it's one of our most common emotions. It's probably our most common negative emotion. And that there's a fair amount of evidence showing that if you deal with it right, it's, it's pretty helpful. It's not like it's debilitating. It's actually useful, perhaps even essential. I mean, I, I would argue that it's essential. I also did a survey of the U.S. population, a quantitative survey of the U.S. population, where we did a, a large public opinion poll of uh, over about 4,500 people. And I found some pretty interesting insights there. I found that when you ask Americans, and I don't know if it's the same thing with Brits, but if you ask Americans the question about regret without using the word regret, all of them admit to having regrets. Mm. <laughs> and um, um, there are a few minor demographic differences. And then I, I think the big revelation came in when I collected 16,000 regrets from people in 105 countries, which is just amazing. I, I put with just a few tweets, I managed to gather this incredible trove. And what I found there, and this is, I think, the big surprise is that over and over again in the world, people had the same four regrets. And these regrets, I thought, were very revealing because in a way, these four regrets 
are, as I say in the book, are a photographic negative of the good life. That is, all these people who were sharing their regrets were also a chorus telling us what constitutes a life well lived. Mm. I was particularly fascinated by the apparently conflicting research between people who think they have, who agree that they have uh, control over their life uh, or free will, and those who say, I believe everything happens for a reason. And two people have recently said that to me, and I have thought, are you absolutely mad? And and I was amazed to find it was so so widespread. And you explain that as an indication of how we use or use storytelling in our lives. And of course, from a kind of existential point of view, it's what makes life bearable. But um, I just wondered, you know, how much of that I mean, did that surprise you or it, 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 I mean, oh, that particular one, that, that particular one not only surprised me, but it bugged me uh, yeah. because, you know, again, in this survey, in, the, in, in this survey, I asked people, do you a question essentially about free will? Do you think people in general have free will control over their lives? And vast majorities, vast majority said yes. And then I said, do you think everything in life happens for a reason? And I said, and vast majority said yes. And I said, well, those two things seem at least to me superficially contradictory. But as I thought it through, it's like, I mean, it's not, you know, um, it is a way to get through the, it, 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 it's not entirely wrong because I do think that part of living a life is figuring out what you have control over and what you don't have control over. If you live your life and say, I have control over nothing, you've essentially ceded, um, the course of your life to forces beyond your control. But if you think that you have full control over everything that you do, then you're going to be spinning yourself into delusion because there are circumstance and luck and randomness that, that occurs. And so teasing those two things out, what do you have control over and what do you don't, seems to be one, you know, one of the central tasks of living life. Mm, that, that's certainly true. But it also seems to me a pretty solipsistic way to interpret the question in that, you know, I instantly want to say, do you think the people in Afghanistan, do you think that's all happened to them for a reason? I mean, it just, it, it seems to be that people are answering that question as in me, that everything happens in the world relates to me. infinite nearly percent of it has absolutely nothing to do with you. But again, yeah. I suppose it's about how we make life bearable and, and create some kind of some kind of meaning. Um, it's not a particularly personal book, but you do say that one of your regrets is going to law school, um, but you deal with it by identifying a very big silver lining, which is still a huge part of your life now because it's where you met your wife. Can you tell mm -hmm. us how this at least thinking helps us deal with regret? Well, I mean, there, 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 are, two, there are a few things that you can do with your regrets. Um, you know, you can use them to, you can feel that spear of negativity and then use it to move forward, to reframe it and to extract a lesson from it. Um, other kinds of things, sometimes what's helpful is simply feeling better about it and, mm -hmm. and what's doing a, what's doing in, you know, sort of logicians and social scientists call a downward counterfactual, a, a, Regret is an upward counterfactual. That is, you imagine how things could have been better. Um, relief is a downward counterfactual. You imagine how things could have been worse. And so the upward counterfactuals begin with, if only, if only I had asked her out on a date, if only I had started my own business, that's regret. But at least is, well, at least I met, you know, at least I met my wife. Um, so it takes some of the sting out of it. I have in my database of all these regrets, I have hundreds. I think they're all from women, actually, that have regret like this. Oh, my big regret. Oh, I shouldn't have married that idiot. But at least I have these two great kids. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about the gender divide, actually, because there's an age divide in that younger people tend to focus more on work-related regrets or foundation regrets, and older people tend to uh, focus more on connection regrets about loved ones, family, friendships, not sustained, or whatever. Over the kind of broad span of a life, what would you say the balance was in terms of gender differences about regrets? The gender differences were not massive. Um, there's some evidence in my survey that, my quantitative survey, that um, women had more regrets about family issues, men had more regrets about career issues. Uh, there's different, th there, there were differences there. It wasn't, it wasn't massive. Um, 
there is some difference, not in my research, but in other research on sexual regrets. So basically to oversimplify, uh, men regret uh, the people they didn't sleep with, women regret the people they did sleep with. Um, the, um, but beyond that, there, wasn't, there weren't massive, massive gender differences. That was one of the interesting things. The difference in, in age is, is significant because on one key dimension, uh, which was just related, I think, to what you're talking about, which is that when we are young, in my survey, 20, 20 year olds had about equal numbers of regrets of action and inaction. So equal numbers of regrets about what they did and regrets about what they didn't do. But as we age, inaction regrets take over. Mm. Uh, we have many more inaction regrets than we do have action regrets. And that's partly because we can sometimes do something about action regrets. We can, we can make amends, we can repair, we can at least them and make them take away a little bit of the sting. But there's always the unknown of an inaction regret. If only I had taken that trip to Greece, if only I had started that business, if only I had spoken up. And those, those really linger in, with, with people. One of the, uh, the things you mentioned that really struck me is, is a quote from Hemingway's The Sun Also Rises, when Bill Gorton asks Mike Campbell uh, how he went bankrupt, and he says two ways, gradually and then suddenly. I, I just love that. I mean, obviously, I love Hemingway anyway. But can you explain how that applies to what you call foundation regrets? Yeah, one of the big four regrets that people have are exactly these foundation regrets. And and these big four regrets, they span domains. And this is one of the things that I discovered is that the way we've been thinking about what people regret was a little bit off, that we were thinking about regrets as this is a career regret, it's an education regret, it's a romance regret. And, there, and I, I thought that there, I, I discovered that there's a deeper structure of regret. Um, and one of those deeper structures is, is are these foundation regrets, which are regrets about, say, uh, if only I hadn't smoked, okay, that's a health regret. Uh, if only I had saved more money, that's a finance regret. If only I had worked harder in university, uh, that's an education regret. But those are the same regrets. It's really about exactly as you're saying, that you, you're at a juncture in your life and you can either do the work, put in the time, do the right thing, be conscientious or not. And when people are not, they regret it. And the consequences of that don't happen immediately. The consequences of that accumulate very slowly. I mean, you know, as you say, to they, you know, they, they accumulate in two ways: gradually, then suddenly, and um, and that's hard. That 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 ends up putting people in a difficult situation. So I have plenty of people who I write about who um, this one guy I, I find it very poignant. He was he's really worked hard his whole life and he's done very well in his career, but he hasn't saved any money. And so he got to the point where he's 43 years old and realizes that he hasn't saved a dime. He hasn't saved any money. And, and that's very frustrating because it wasn't one bad decision. It was accumulation of all these kinds of things. And now he looks up after he started working at, at a very young age, after 25 years in the workplace, and he has nothing to show for it. I couldn't believe how much he, I couldn't believe how much he'd earned in the fact having had that kind of salary that he'd managed not to save anything but uh, uh, it's incredible but he mm. but believe me he's not alone that is a, that, that, of the foundation regret around the country around the world less less in less in North America and in the UK but in other parts of Europe and in Asia a lot of in South America a lot of regrets about smoking mm. um, and also a uh, decent number of regrets about just physical health and exercise and caring for one's body. Uh, some regrets about mental health, not taking care of that earlier. A lot of people say, oh, if only I had actually acknowledged some of my mental health, you know, taking care of my mental health 10 years earlier than I did, I, I wouldn't have squandered those 10 years. Um, but these foundation regrets were, were, were fairly prevalent. And the other thing about them, going to what we were talking about before, is that on these kinds of regrets, regret requires some degree of agency. You have to like it, regret feels bad because it's your because it's your fault. And I'm not convinced that all foundation regrets are are entirely somebody's fault. If you are, you know, earning money and you're supporting multiple people in your family, um, you know, it's harder to save money. That's not entirely on you. If you like here in the states where we have this ridiculous system of financing higher education. Uh, where people are taking out massive loans. If you aren't saving money because you graduated from college, from the university saddled with all kinds of debt, that's not entirely on you. So foundation regrets are a little bit tricky in that regard, but they're, they're pretty prevalent. And, and what it suggests, I think, is that 
you know, a good life is being conscientious and doing the work. Mm. And the gradually and suddenly thing often applies to people in midlife when they look at their work situations and suddenly realize they're pretty unhappy in their work. And yeah. I, I, it could I, be their work situations. It could be their health situations, too. Yeah. Yeah. And so I wanted to ask, this is a, a podcast focused on work. And I wanted to ask when people reach, say, their 50s and they're miserable in their work, there's the reality of the path they have taken and the realities of the marketplace. You know, I'm a journalist. Mm -hmm. I was 49 when I was made redundant from a job on a newspaper. I knew the newspaper is, uh, the media is a sort of pretty youth orientated industry. I knew I was not going to get another job like the one I had. And so I, I, you know, I'm freelance and I do the portfolio thing and so on. But what advice would you give to people how to use the regret frameworks that you outline in the book for people to assess their realistic options if they are miserable in their work. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it might go beyond. I think it might go beyond regret that that question. But um, I think in this particular case, it's 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 interesting to think about why you are miserable in your work. All right, so there could, there could be multiple reasons. Um, is it because you're not being challenged? So that's that's one thing. Is it because you're not feeling a sense of affinity with the people whom you're working with? That's another factor. Is it uh, a sense that you don't have any higher purpose in what you're doing? Um, and so I think it's important to dis I think it's important to disentangle those kinds of things. Mm. Uh, what the actual source of the discontent is. This goes way beyond um, regret, but what's the source of that discontent? Because I think people have different the roots of discontent are different among different people. The other thing in terms of making the change is that it's also the case that we've been a little bit sold a false bill of goods on how we make the change. We tend to think that the, that the way you do it is you come up with this, you, 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 you decide, you plan and you execute. So I, I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do. I'm going to create a plan for that. And then I'm going to start executing against the plan. And that's not how it works. Um, that's not how it works in real life. And that's there's academic research from uh, Ermenia Ibarra showing that that is false. That's not how it works. What basically the way that you do that in midlife or any life, the way you make that transition is you try stuff and see how it goes and learn from that and then try more stuff and then try more stuff. That is, we have the sequence wrong. We think that we have to discover what we want to do and then do it. But the sequence is wrong. We have to do stuff because that's how we discover. Exactly. Uh, and just our whole kind of mental frame for doing this is off and off. And that's why people get frustrated. Mm. Um, in the, uh, Tim, the Tim Ferriss show, you um, talked about your experience of how you hadn't even, you know, in retrospect, your regret was that you hadn't spoken to anyone about yeah, I know, what, it's involved, what was involved in being a lawyer. Um, can you say a bit about your experience there and what, what made you decide to jack it in? Well, I don't want to state, I, I don't want to overstate, you know, how much that was a miserable experience. Um, but, you know, the, the, the truth is, is that, um, but I think the lesson from that is a lesson in a lesson that I've learned actually, and that I've tried to teach my kids as well. It's a broader lesson and, and it's, and it, and it can be an antidote to regret, I guess. I, I think it really can be is, is a principle of surrogation. Mm -hmm. That is we, uh, when I was younger, I thought I knew a lot more than I really knew. So if I were going to go to law school, I said, well, I know what law school is like because I don't know how, but I just knew. <laughs> and instead, what I should have done is found somebody who was a surrogate and someone who was like me and say, and who ended up doing that and say, okay, well, how was that for you? How, uh, what did you learn? What were the high points? What were the low points? Uh, and I think that's true for anything. So if you're contemplating, and it's, I think this is a really good point for your previous question is, you know, if you, let's say that you are working as a journalist and you want to make a career, you're contemplating a career change to become a career coach or something like that. Talk to people who are career coaches. Talk to people who have made that. Find someone like you who has made that transition, either successfully or unsuccessfully, and talk to them. What was it like? What did you learn? Um, and I think that that's really the 
I think that surrogation can be an antidote to regret, mm. that it can be, it can inoculate you from certain kinds of regrets. Mm. You also talk about the uh, sort of making choices and the concept of satisficing and how mm. if you use yeah. the, the regret framework for relatively unimportant things like, you know, how to get the best deal on absolutely everything, how right. the people who did do that were fundamentally pretty miserable because they were um, sort of immobilized by all kinds of different regrets. And I suppose the the challenge in is to work out what warrants the effort and what doesn't really, because pe- plenty of people are immobilized by choice, actually. And that's in, in the Western world. That's, you know, one of yeah. the and I think people have that we can have that on the career front as well. I mean, I think, for example, mm. there is that whole um, divide between um, specialism and and you know taking a broad approach. As a journalist, I have quite a butterfly. I mean, I have certain specialisms, but broadly, I'm interested in everything, which is both an advantage and a disadvantage right. because right. you realise that in a in a marketplace, it's good to have a specialism. But I've never wanted to tie myself down, and you know, so there's that whole kind of tension. I wonder if you could say a bit about that and how we manage that. Um, well, I mean. I think it's some. I, I'll go even more meta on you on the on that one. That is, we. I found in general in life that the answers to either or questions are generally yes. So, mm. should you be a specialist or should you be a generalist? Yes, that's the answer to that question. Mm. And so, I think in any realm, especially now, if you are only a generalist, only a generalist. Um, you might have some problems um, because you don't have the depth that you one creates by having some kind of specialty. But I also think that if you have only the specialty and not the breadth, you're going to be in trouble because you're going to not be able to connect it to other domains, other industries, other things like that. And so it's a little bit of a cliche at this point, but I think it's an accurate cliche, which you hear among hiring managers in the U.S. and the U.K., which is that we want people who are T-shaped, that is shaped like a T. They have some breadth, but they also have some depth. And I think that's the, I think that's the answer on, again, you know, you know, as, as we've been talking about, I do think that the borders between those are murkier than we think, mm. um, you know, so it's actually, you can be a better generalist if you have a specialty because you know something so deeply, you can connect it to other realms. You can be a better specialist if you're a generalist because you've explored a number of different areas and know the one that speaks most deeply to you. So uh, I'm, in, I'm in favor. Of, I, I try to be a T-shaped person and I mm. encourage the people who I care about to be T-shaped people too. That's very interesting. I hadn't heard that before. Very interesting. Oh, really? Yeah. It makes me think of some years ago, I heard um, Thomas Friedman talk at a, an education conference uh, called the Global Skills and Education forum and I'm trying to think what his book was I think it was something like thank you for can't remember thank you for something rather and um and he was talking about how we need to or in, in the precarious world that we are sort of in and getting to with the rise of, of China AI etc cetera, etc cetera, in terms of skills we need to think like immigrants which I'm sure is mm. very good advice it also is tremendously hard work and um and I just wondered you know you obviously became a, a free agent you know you wrote the book free agent nation um and you are a, a kind of um poster boy in a way for the uh freewheeling independent life but it's sort of, the reality is it's terribly hard work and the average earnings oh, and stuff God, of, yes. you know and and I'm, i have no doubt you work incredibly hard but you know the average earning of a self-employed person in the uk is about ten thousand pounds and I'm just wondering if, you know, what about this kind of, sometimes I think people, um, the kind of model people are imbibing of employment is kind of gig economy precariat, which doesn't feel terribly appealing, versus the kind of middle class, freelance, whatever, um, which can seem like unbelievably sort of exhaustingly hard work. Where are you on that in terms of advising people? Because obviously you are very successful, but many people are not. How should they think about this when they start out? 
Oh, when they, so when they start out, I think you need mm -hmm. to be extraordinarily pragmatic, extraordinarily pragmatic. I don't think that there's anything freewheeling about it in the way that you approach this. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, for example, um, when I decided to go out on my own, my, my wife kept her job. She kept her health insurance because we, we don't have an NHS here. We have mm -hmm. private health insurance. Um, and she didn't make, we didn't make any change on that until for a few years until some, not all, some of the precariousness went away. So I think it's important that people are very um, uh, deliberate in how they make this choice and that they take than giant leaps. This is one mm -hmm. reason why the average self-employment numbers are seem low is that for some people that income is a side gig is a side hustle they're doing both and they're doing that as an experiment as a way in and i think that's often very sensible so the idea that you should just chuck your day job and set up shop the next day is not a good idea mm -hmm. uh, you need to take as with many things you need to be willing to take the risk, but you need to be able to mitigate some of the said, you know, back, I think that it's actually even easier to do this than when I, um, when I um, wrote Free Agent Nation 100 years ago, you know, so uh, I think the, te the technology is better. I think mm -hmm. it is much more socially acceptable. And there are platform, I mean, you know, we've, we've, We've the number we've the number of people who it's it's astonishing to me who are making a living on YouTube um, here in the states you have people I never thought it would happen who are making money not not a lot but some who are making money on paid newsletters mm. um, and you know especially in the media landscape right now it is so incredibly splintered uh, that. I mean, the cliche, I guess, is is broadcast television, where the most popular broadcast television show would be would have been the lowest rated television show 30 years ago. Uh, you have people who are making a living on new, writing their newsletters by charging four dollars a month, but they have to, and they have 10,000 subscribers. So mm -hmm. they're making forty thousand dollars a month writing a newsletter. That's pretty darn good. Mm -hmm. You know, even though so. So, so if I want to offer advice, it is, it is start small, mitigate the risk. And I would encourage people to read a very enduring essay by a guy, American dude named Kevin Kelly called 1000 true fans. And where he talks about that a starting point for, for, for doing anything, particularly in media, because I think we're all in media businesses now, no matter what we do mm. is, you know, making sure you have those 1000 true fans. And that becomes the catalyst for all of it. How interesting. Um, Kevin Kelly was mentioned in that uh, conversation with Tim Ferriss, and I hadn't heard of him, but I have heard of a, the concept of a thousand true fans. So that's interesting. Yeah. I, will, I will go away and read that. So after law school, you you ended up working in politics and uh policy and uh, as a speechwriter for Al Gore, which seems like an astonishing thing to be doing at a relatively young age. Um it, it was shortly before the West Wing was made. Um, did you watch the West Wing, and did it feel did it feel relatively realistic? Well, I mean, a lot of people working there were very young. Mm. Okay, so I was not an outlier in that. There was a very young staff, in part because the pay is very low and the hours are brutal. Yeah, and so uh, so it selects for young people with bottomless amounts of energy who are willing to do anything anywhere anytime so that's mm. part of it mm. uh, i actually never really watched the west wing i think i've seen maybe one episode oh really and yeah and but what i've seen i mean it's a joke it's not anything realistic i mean the the um the i uh, it, everything is much too polished much too shellacked much too earnest Mm. It's uh, the, the the politics is a, is a, is another workplace where flawed people are trying to get good work done yeah. against the odds, <laughs> and yeah. um, and certainly in the world of speech writing, it's not this exalted profession where we're sitting around in smoking jackets, thinking great thoughts, and whispering in the ears of the powerful. 
we're just, it's like a, it's like an emergency department where we're just stitching up bodies and hoping they don't die on our watch. And, you know, so, um, yeah, yeah so it's, um, I just think you think of it like any other workplace, really amazingly talented and hardworking. Some people who are less so, uh, obstacles that present themselves, frustrations, the, the occasional moment of joy. It's like any workplace. Well, except in this country, it clearly isn't like any workplace because we've just seen that all the all the uh, everyone at Downing Street was having parties all through lockdown. When right, exactly, exactly. There was all these like, yeah, there's endless wine and cheese and alcohol soaked parties while everybody else is everybody who's not at on Downing Street is hunkered in their tiny apartments yeah. trying to not get the not get the, the virus. Um, that that's an interesting phenomenon. That's an interesting phenomenon too to look at from the outside because I do think that the um, maybe it's an uh, overstatement or a stereotype, but I do think the Brits have a far lower tolerance for hypocrisy than Americans do. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. That's interesting. Um, so you presumably you were thinking i mean most people go into politics because they want to make a difference and it sounds well my understanding is that you you left because you essentially wanted to be your own boss but did you also kind of give up on politics i don't mean as in you know giving up on democracy but as in something you felt you wanted to be actively involved in i think so i mean i think it was it's very frustrating to get things done and uh, and that was a long time ago, so it's even worse mm. in America right now. So mm. I thought it was very difficult to get. I thought it was very difficult to get things done, um, and that was that was certainly part of it. Um, I felt that in many ways that it there was a, a kind of a cynicism that would take over if you spend too much time in it. That is a self protective cynicism that I don't I didn't think was very healthy. But also a big part of it was that I wanted more control over my life and I wanted to do my own thing. And when I, you know, over time, like many people, you discover who you are. And what I discovered was that I was not a lawyer. I was not a political staffer. I was actually a writer. And that's what I was kind of growing into becoming. Mm. And when you, as a writer, did you have a hunch that you would be extremely successful? I, I don't even think about it that way. I just, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm just, uh, I, you know, when I started out, I was like, okay, can I get some good work done and pay the bills? Mm-hmm. Thinking, I don't think I ever had the thought, oh, am I going to be successful? What I thought about was, can I make this piece that I'm working on as good as possible? And am mm-hmm. I going to get paid? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then obviously, your books did sell extremely well. And um, I wondered, how did that, did that change your approach? I mean, I've been working with writers for 30 years. And obviously, most writers, you know, people have different trajectories, most writers, um, some some get more successful, some get less successful. I mean, in terms of sales, obviously, the, you know, one's Mm -hmm. criteria might be completely Mm -hmm. different. Mm -hmm. But um, did you, selling well brings its own pressures. Did you did it complicate things for you in terms of what you wanted to do, the kind of work you wanted to do, or were you always absolutely clear that you would do what you wanted to do? I'm, I don't want to suggest that I was always absolutely clear that I would do what I wanted to do, but I like to believe it was mostly that mm. because you know if I had a book that did reasonably well. I didn't, I didn't begin the next project by saying, okay, what's another thing that can do reasonably well? I said, all right, what is something else that I can endure multiple years of research and multiple years of talking about? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and you know, like, what am I, what am I most deeply interested in? And, and, you know, in the back of my head, the belief that if I was deeply interested in it, then, then readers would be deeply interested in it. Mm-hmm. And then you just give it a whirl and see, and some things work and some things don't. But, you, you know, for me, I guess I, I guess I don't, the way I think about it is much more, much shorter horizon, which is, can I produce something good right now? 
<laughs> mm. and and recognize that I don't have full control over what happens to it. Mm. I mean, I have some, and I try to do everything that I can, but um, I, I don't think that you. And one of the things I learned, I think it's a good lesson about careers, is that you know we can make decisions for instrumental reasons or for fundamental reasons. So an instrumental reason is I'm going to take this job because it's going to lead to this other job, which is going to lead to this third job, or I'm going to write about this because it's going to be my springboard to do this next thing. You know, so you, you make decisions for instrumental reasons, or you can make decisions for fundamental reasons, meaning like oh I, I want to do this because I want to do it and I care about it and I'm willing to work hard on it. Mm. And I think that fundamental reasons are how we should make our choices. Mm. Not because I have this inspired or exalted view of humanity. It's just that instrumental reasons don't work. Mm. You have no idea. You have no mm. idea where something's going to lead. Exactly, you, yeah. you, you, it's, it's not a chess game. You don't know what the pieces on the board are going to look like in six months or a year. And so mm. I, I'm not a big fan of that kind of instrumental reasoning. Again, not because I'm some kind of noble figure, but because it doesn't work. Mm. And what works better most of the time is making decisions for fundamental reasons, yeah. doing things because you want to do it. And if you want to do something and you care about it and you're curious about it, you're going to work hard. And if you work hard, the end product is probably going to be good. And if the end product is good, you have a fighting chance of good things happening to you. Not a guarantee at all, but you have a yeah. better chance. But if you do things for instrumental reasons and you actually fundamentally don't care about it, you end up producing shoddy work. Yeah. And this and this also applies to intrinsic and extrin extrinsic motivation. It's similar, right. Exactly. 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 I mean you need to be, you know, here's the thing that like you need to be like you need to do the math. You need to be aware of paying your bills. And I am believe me, I am keenly aware of all those kinds of things. But that's a second order question, because if that's the first order question, it's not going to work very well. Mm. If I say, to, okay, here you go. If I say, okay, what is the most commercially successful book I can come up with? I can rack my brain and say, okay, I know the most commercially successful book is going to be X. And then I can set out writing the most commercially successful book. There are two problems with that. One, I'm probably wrong about mm. what the most commercially successful book is going to be. Two, if I'm writing a book only to make it a commercial success, I'm probably not going to write a very good book, which, of course, is going to contravene the goal of making it a commercial. So I, you're much better off, you know, you're, you're much better off getting, if you can, getting a good agent and then writing something that you deeply care about mm -hmm. and, you know, working the margins a little bit to make it more commercially appealing. Because then if you if you're writing about something that you deeply care about, you're going to you're going to do the hard work over several years to make it good. Couldn't agree more, couldn't agree more. You've uncovered so much research in the course of all the books you've written. What has had the biggest impact on you personally of all the research, of all the insights you've had? Hmm. I mean, I think at a broad level, a lot of the stuff that I've written always seems to come back to meaning mm. and our search for meaning. So even if a, a book like Free Agination about people going out on their own is it partly a story of less the story of the inexorable forces of information age capitalism and more the story about what do we want out of life? What do we yeah. what what gives us meaning? And that and I think that kind of keeps coming up over and over and over again. And that's certainly come up with the with the regret book, you know. If you know, I got this chorus of sixteen thousand people telling me what matters most in life, and what gives life meaning is, yes, yeah, some stability, but also a chance to be bold and learn and grow, um, doing the right thing and being a good person, and then connecting to others. Those are the things that really give life meaning. And so, in a weird way, it's an interesting question because I think that I didn't set out to write about meaning, but basically every book I've written comes back to the idea of what are we, what meaning are we seeking out of our lives? Mm. Yeah. I've written two and so do mine. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that could just be the quest of that just could be, you know, the nature, the nature of things. It could be, it could be why you and I write books is that you and I are trying to figure out the meaning in our own lives. Yes, I think I think it's why most writers write books. But I think it, it, it there's always a different prism, isn't there? And um, yeah, I mean, I think I think I think most writers have the same the same theme, even if it's not exactly meaning. I think 
every book, in a sense, repeats the quest in a slightly different form. But um, oh, interesting, yeah, could be, yeah. What are the downsides of being a guru or perceived as a guru? Of believing the perception. <laughs> I mean, I think that's what it is. Um, you know, um, I ne I would never in a hundred years call myself a guru. Of course you wouldn't. Uh, of course you wouldn't. Yeah, but... I, I would. I would. I would. I would. Uh, you know, and I sort of recoil if somebody else calls me that. I'm just, you know, I'm I'm a writer, and I'm just trying to, you know, I have to say it's like, you know, I'm, I, I maybe because I maybe because I am a middle class person from the middle of America, but. I just, you know, my view of the world is very much a get up in the morning and go to work and do your job as best you can approach mm -hmm. to the world. Yeah. And um, and I and I think that that has served me well, and I think it serves other people well. Yeah. And I don't think I've deviated much from that in, in, um, you know, the twenty years I've been writing books. What has brought you most joy in your career? I think there's something exhilarating even now. It's kind of amazing to me still, have, even having doing this for 20 years, where I sit in this office where I'm talking to you right now, and I'm working my butt off, and I'm trying to come up with ways to explain the world and synthesize research and tell stories and put it together in a coherent way. And I'm sweating and straining every single day. And then, like, literally a couple of years later, I will hear from someone who took six hours or seven hours to sit down with what I created and read it through and either tell me in person or tell me via email that they read it, that they thought about it, that maybe it changed the way they looked at the world a little bit, that maybe they did one thing as a result. And that's just kind of amazing. Mm. I mean, that kind of exhilaration never, uh, that, that kind of exhilaration never goes away. Mm. Um, it's mm. just that I, I still find it astonishing and, and exhilarating. So I think that's the thing that brings me the greatest joy. Mm. And yet all work lives involve some stuff one doesn't particularly like. You know, I mean, I, I find I can spend days sort of being eaten up by, you know, admin, email, all oh. the bollocks, basically. You know, it just some weeks I, I only do the bollocks and I never write a word and it drives me absolutely yeah. mad. How... I won't ask practically how you manage all that stuff, but just emotionally, how do you manage that side of things? Well, I mean, I think that the way you manage it emotionally is to manage it practically. Mm. <laughs> so, so, um, so for me, um, one of the things I've discovered about, you know, working for myself for 20 plus years is that structure is liberating. And so when I write, uh, you know, on writing days, uh, I, I, I put a, large stone wall to keep out the bollocks. Mm. And so I will on writing days, you know, I will, I'll come into my office, you know, not super early in the morning, but you know, eight o'clock, eight thirty in the morning. And I will set myself a quota of words that I have to create. And I don't do anything else until I hit that quota. And then I mm. come back the next day and do it. And then I come back the next day and do it. And then I come back the next day and do it. So setting up that practical system is a way to avoid the, and I feel your pain, man. I mean, the emotional drain of all of the emails and scheduling and, and administrative stuff, even if, even if I have, you know, sort of, you know, a few other people helping me on the, um, you know, on scheduling things for my book or whatever, uh, it's still very draining. And, and, you know, I think the other thing is, is that it's, um, I, I, and I haven't, I haven't figured out how to do this well, is that there's always more to do. Exactly. It is essentially it is essentially a bottomless to do list. It is infinite. Exactly. And I haven't figured out a good job. I haven't figured out myself. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm vaguely vaguely cheered when, up to hear that because when do you when do you stop? What exactly. is enough? Exactly. And and um, I mean, I feel like I feel like I feel like I could work twenty four hours a day, and still there would be more stuff to do. And that's not healthy. Mm. Well, I was going to ask you about that, actually, because people took, I mean, actually, one of, one of the interesting things about the, the generations 
below us we're the same age pretty much the same age you're six months younger than me I think um is this idea of um you know work-life balance and not wanting to give your life to your work which you know I understand except that as a journalist there was certainly never that option if you wanted to do it the the deal was you work all the time and you know if you wanted to not work all the time you did a different job um, mm-hmm. And then if you're freelance, of course, it's up to you. But I, I would challenge most people to make a success of a freelance life. Well, it depends, obviously, what the area they're in, but generally working extremely hard and is, mm-hmm. you know, part of the deal. What's your view on this idea of work-life balance, so-called? Um, I think it's difficult. I think the pandemic has made it even more difficult. Mm. Um, I, I, I uh the for me it's still a struggle i've been doing it for a long time it's still a struggle um and you know i think we just have to give ourselves a little bit of compassion for recognizing that our struggle is diff- is is similar to many people's struggles and we mm. just have to figure out the best way to we just have to figure out the best way to do it um and people's circumstances are different too you know it depends on whether you have a, a spouse or a partner depends on whether you have kids, whether you have aging parents to, to take care of. Um, but uh, it's a it's a it's a big pressure. And I don't think that we have worked it out on an individual level or even a societal level. So if you think about I mean, the U.S. experience is different, but I, I look at, at, at parents who have little kids. You know, we have you know, we're the only country in the world that doesn't have a robust infrastructure for child care. So that makes people's lives a lot more difficult. Uh, but at, 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 at an individual level, it's hard. I mean, here's my, you know, I started my to-do list for, for the day. And if I kept going, it would be, you know, pages and pages and pages. And so how do I end the day feeling like I got something done, but didn't destroy myself? And that's, a, for me at least, Christine, that's a daily struggle. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I shouldn't be pleased, but I am pleased because, because uh, you, you know, one sometimes has the impression that other people have this licked, and you think, how is that possible? Nobody does. No. Nobody does. <laughs> well, that's a, that's a, a good note for a, a guru, a perceived guru, to end on. So, thanks very, very much. It's been a, a real, a real privilege and pleasure. Thanks. I, I've really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify, or any of the main podcast directories. And I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it, and or leave a review. Do subscribe to my free Substack newsletter, The Art of Work, and do follow at The Art of Work on Twitter or at theartofwork.co on Instagram, which is also the name of the website. My new book, Outside the Sky is Blue, will be published on the 17th of February, and there will be a launch event at Waterstones Piccadilly. Details are on my link tree and it will be lovely to see you there. And do join me for The Art of Work next week.